Hi everyone, and welcome to Frazzers Capital Podcast. I'm Michael Frazzers, your host, and first, a quick disclaimer. This is not advice and is for information purposes only. Our fund is only available to wholesale investors, and we can and do change our mind about both markets and companies mentioned here all the time. So please keep that in mind. Uh, today's just going to be me. Uh, and I'm going to put down some thoughts on, you know, where markets are trading at the moment, how the year's gone, um, some SPACs, uh, rising interest rates, how that's affecting valuations, and how we're kind of trading this, how we're taking advantage of the opportunities. Um, this is kind of the sell-off in the last few weeks seems to be the first one that's hit a lot of new retail investors. So we've often commented on one of the most interesting things about last year's sell-off, the big coronavirus sell-off, is that it was institutions that were largely panicking and selling. And it was retail people who were buying. Uh, I know several people who bought their first stocks in, of their entire lifetime uh, in that period. Since then, it's basically been smooth running. You know, things have just worked. Everything has gone up. Um, this was the first time, the last few weeks has been the first time uh, that that kind of generation of investors, uh, are very kind of, I guess, inexperienced or in the first year of investing investors, are uh, really been tested by the market. Um, if you think about what happened in 2021 so far, there was a pretty sharp rally in SPACs, um, renewables, life sciences, all kinds of like retail-loved stocks um, into mid-February. Since then, there was a really sharp fall. So we're talking 30 to 50% falls in some of the most kind of, I guess, hottest stocks, um, including many companies that had just come to market through SPACs um, that had traded up two, three, four times um, and now back to or almost back to their kind of SPAC um, deal price or $10 where most of them are. Seeing as most retail people buy after that, you know, it's generally insiders and, and, and pipe investors that access that $10 price. That means pretty much everybody that's bought these companies um, on the open market is, is probably sitting at a loss. Um, there's also been pretty significant sell-offs across tech and renewables um, or renewables and life sciences in particular. And I guess one of the most uh, widely commented on aspects of this particular crash, it seems to be centered around Kathy Wood and ARK and her stocks. Um, so she runs a fairly concentrated portfolio, you know, much more concentrated than us. You know, you might have 10% in Tesla, um, Teladoc, Square. A few, there's a tiny bit of overlap, maybe about 8%, I think the last time we calculated. Um, but generally she goes for very different, different companies. Um, and her fund has gone, by the way, we're huge Kathy Wood supporters and huge fans of what, of what she do, has done and what she's doing. Um, but a fund has gone from five billion to fifty-five billion. Um, she's was one of the best performing managers over the last few years, uh, and now that's, that there's a chance that that flips into reverse. And I think uh, on those larger companies, they're more than big enough to handle, you know, billions of dollars of volume. But you know, that fifty billion, roughly, of asset value, a lot of that's in life sciences. A lot of these are very small companies with a few hundred million dollars of revenue. Um, and they've been bid up to kind of 30, 40, 50 times sales. And we've been beneficiaries of that, to be honest, because we own some of them. They're generally small positions. We kind of reduced them as they, as they went up. And, and once things hit 40, 50, 60 times sales, generally we kind of exit. So we're fortunate that we're actually able to, to, to exit some of these in February. Um, and we'll come, and, and as they fall, if they continue to fall, we'll, we'll look to add and support, support the companies then. Um, there's another kind of interesting thing about what's happened, and that's that software has really been hit hard. 
Now, the story of software is an interesting one. It's another one that was kind of like the best performing sector of the last five years. It really kind of kicked off in 2016. So a lot of these amazing companies went sideways for, for years before that. Um, in 2016, that's when you saw Shopify trade at 10 times sales. Um, other companies like Twilio, like top tier software companies trading at six times sales. And you might kind of criticize us for using, or me for using sales. You know, a lot of these companies, actually Twilio and Shopify exceptions, uh, but a lot of these companies have, you know, extremely high margins. You know, if you're 90% margin business, sales is very close to your gross profit. You know, the way we look at these companies is we expect a good, fast-growing company to then invest all that gross profit basically on the next level of growth, um, which is what these companies do. And then certainly the best ones. So fast forward from 2016 to 2021, where we are now, um, and those multiples have gone from, you know, five to 10 times to 30 to 50 times. There's companies trading at over 100 times. Um, and the companies themselves have grown exceptionally strongly over that period. And the combination of that exceptional growth and then a massive increase in the multiple on that growth, on that higher sales, has led to some of the best returning stocks in the market. And really kind of every crash, software has been extraordinarily resilient. Maybe there were brief moments where you could have bought in coronavirus. Um, 2018, they were rock solid in that big sell-off then. They are really fast to recover. This is the first time where you're starting to see pretty big falls, high to low falls. Um, to give you some of those, those, those numbers, um, what's, what's a good example? Twilio has gone from 30 times sales, 2020 to 24. Um, Shopify has gone from 47 times sales at the end of 2020 to kind of 33 times 2021, so 30% drop. In fact, we, we made a list of about 12 of these, and they've, on average they've dropped. The multiple has dropped 34%. And the interesting thing about that is, is the stocks themselves are only down 14% of that period. So it really shows how you have to use this change in multiple and change in and change in revenue. Can that is how that is what makes up your return. It's a combination of those two things. And and the way we like to do to think about these things is to make sure that our growth rate uh, is is as high as possible. You know, so these are companies that are winning where it counts, where it counts, and that's like consumers are actually spending dollars on these companies in rapidly increasing amounts. Um, and then we basically want our companies to grow much faster than the multiples can compress. Uh, but broadly, we're not we're not really in many of these these high valued companies. I mean, software I think at one point came down to one percent of our portfolio in February. So really, we really were kind of selling out of these things, even though we love the companies. It's just that at forty seven times at fifty times sales, you just got years of multiple compression. Um, so if you think about it, like across that universe of twelve stocks that we looked at, uh, many of which we have owned back on our cheap, you know, the multiples kind of come down from forty four times twenty twenty down to 27 times 2021. So it's a kind of, say a third has been locked off those multiples almost exactly. There's a good chance, you know, another third gets locked off. So they go from 27 times down to 18 times. And that's when it gets really interesting. That's when it's kind of like, well, you know, you've got a company growing at 50% a year. And it's 18 times sales. Like maybe there's a 50% fall in multiple um, over time. That's a single year of growth. And then you get this amazing company that could compound for the next five to 10 years. You know, your returns are going to be exceptional uh, from those levels. Now, these, some of these are still too expensive. So an example is, is, is Snowflake. So at 20, end of 2020, that was trading 133 times 2020 sales. So red hot IPO, you know, it was, it was always trading above 100 times. Our view on that stuff is pretty much no matter how good the company is, the most likely scenario is it goes sideways. That is, in fact, what's happened. You know, it's from, certainly from the, the point where it first traded, um, was first available to public equity market. 
investors. It's basically gone down, but mostly sideways a bit. And we think that multiple is going to compress um, dramatically because the growth rate's over 100%. Um, and we think that stock's actually going to come down a bit. Uh, and that 133 times sales is compressed to 56 2021. And for us to be to be buying something like that, it's really got to be below 20, um, which is kind of another, it's already lost about 60% in multiple. That's another 60% down. Um, which is which is which is very possible. So we're just gonna wait uh and see. You know, the other feature of markets is uh is obviously SPACs, probably worth mentioning those. Um, and then we'll kind of talk about what, what's kind of causes, which most people are talking about interest rates. So SPACs. You know, we've written that we, we actually really like the structure. It's a very quick way to go to market. You don't have to deal with investment banks. Investment banks will give discounted stock to the people that pay them the most commission. It's just how it works. Um, there's no, that's no criticism of it. The, the flip side of that is the investors that pay the most commission will basically back almost every sensible, every sensible IPO. So that's how, so the existence of those kinds of investors makes it much easier for things to list. So on the one hand, it looks corrupt. You know, Snowflake, you know, pops hugely in that the, the investment banks gave a little bit of stock to their best clients, um, not necessarily to the long-term investors, to their best clients, which are almost always short-term traders because they're the ones that spin the commission, long, short, um, high turnover hedge funds. They pay the most commission and they get the most access to the IPOs. Retail investors are basically locked out. Um, like we understand like there's there's good things and bad things. It's good because the sophisticated funds know things will be discounted and so will support almost everything which has huge benefits in the sense it's, it's much easier for things, people to list, companies to list. But it's bad because it's very unfair for retail investors, um, who in this case, saying Snowflake, bought at exceptionally high prices and were locked out of those kind of good op- return opportunities. Anyway, uh, back to SPACs. The SPACs, obviously, cash, cash box, um, the management of the cash box, or the sponsor of the cash box negotiates uh, with a company and they just merge in. So you don't need to deal with that, that allocation process. Generally, there's still investment banks involved, but it's kind of like a negotiated agreement. It's much faster. There's often a, an investment made at the same time. So the company gets the cash box plus whatever the, they call it pipe, um, private investment in public equity investment. Um, and then typically, you know, these, these things can happen very fast. And again, they're also often mispriced, or not mispriced, deliberately underpriced to make sure that the people that do the deal um, get paid. But unlike IPOs, if you like the deal, you can transact a retail person or a fund like ours can transact on the open market and buy more or less as much stock as you want. Um, there's other little quirks. So you think like why would somebody hand cash to – why would somebody invest in a cash box? Why would you take your cash that you own and put it with, with somebody else's control? The answer for that is there's two reasons. Firstly, you often get options. So if a deal is done and the SPAC merges with something, you get additional upside. Uh, so you might contribute $100 to the, the SPAC IPO and then just flick the stock, get your $100 back, and then keep the upside optionality. It's a great play. It makes all the sense in the world. It lists the SPAC. It's, it kind of makes sense for everybody involved. Um, of course, somebody has to take that. That value of that option will basically be paid away by the, the company merging in. Um, but ultimately, the SPAC investors get to vote on the deal. So the, the, the idea is kind of like, give us 100 bucks, we'll do a deal. If you don't like it, you can vote against it and you get your money back. Um, and if you don't do a deal, then you also get your money back in a set time. So for this initial SPAC investor, even one that doesn't just flick their shares and keep whatever options are involved, um, it kind of, the, the, there's a lot to be said for it. Um, so 
broadly, we, we actually like this. I mean, one of the problems in markets has been that really good companies have stayed private for too long. Things like Airbnb, things like Uber, all the money was made by a handful of people. I mean, we're not communists. We want people to make money, but I would much prefer to see a broad retail spectrum of people make a ton of money in these handful of companies that disrupt every other company and that every retail person ends up using. So Uber, you know, for example, that came and disrupted, wiped out entire industries, certainly the taxi industry. Um, and then people all around the world were spending money, but nobody was really able to capture that value. You know, something like Afterpay, millions and millions of, of users, they listed really early, probably less out of choice and more out of necessity, but listed really early. And then the people that liked the product and were spending on it were able to buy the shares and get upside on it. Um, there's similar dynamics in things like Tesla and Afterpay. You know, there's always, te- sorry, Tesla and Apple. You know, there's always those charts. What if you bought, it used to be funny, it used to be like, what if you bought the Apple shares instead of the computer? Uh, but obviously, Tesla, it's even more extreme because these are carts. So what if you put that 100 grand into Tesla stock before it went up 30 times? You know, those charts are even more insane. But the good thing is these things are listed so the people spending on these companies um, and even the people being disrupted by these companies have access to the shares. Uh, but because the IPO thing is so intense, everyone, all the good companies like Uber, Airbnb, uh, in Australia, Canva, um, these things stayed private. So think about Canva, you know, there's there's heaps of people in Australia who'd love to invest in that. Retail investors. And who got the benefit? You know, a handful of, of of venture capital funds and rich early investors, people that just had access at the time, and offshore investors. Um, but the retail market didn't get it. I do think I do hope at some point over over the next 10, 20, 30 years, people start thinking about that. You know, it's kind of like it would be much better to list early and then the successful companies really can those exceptional uh, creations of wealth. Um, which come from exceptional revenue growth, which come from, in a world of flat GDP, come from exceptional revenue declines elsewhere. We really hope people start thinking about that and then start, you know, encouraging these companies to list. But, you know, anything that makes the listing process easier facilitates that, and SPACs do. Ah, that was a very long-winded uh, explanation of why we like SPACs. The reason we don't like like them is that there's there's a few tweaks. So... One of the features of SPACs is that you can make long-term forecasts, where in IPOs that's heavily regulated um, and the whole because the process is so difficult and so many layers of due diligence, um, you, you don't see, you know, 10-year forecasts. SPACs, there's been such a strong boom and such desperation from SPAC sponsors now that there's so many of them to do a deal that some very, you know, early-stage companies are coming to market. And these are companies doing things that are difficult. And so I'm thinking things like flying cars, things like battery companies that don't have batteries, like a new way of getting a battery. But the problem is if there's like 10 companies with new types of battery and there's already some very good options that are also incrementally improving. So the new battery companies are chasing a moving target, which is current technology, where most investment is spent, like on those incremental improvements. That's really where most of most innovation happens. Um, most of those are battery companies are not going to make any money. Um, they trade at billions of dollars. Similarly, there's a good chance that, you know, a flying taxi company doesn't make any money. That's a complicated, difficult, difficult business. It's going to be re- in, take intense capital investment. Um, there's all these regulatory issues. It's going to be slow. Um, and the market's probably relatively small. And these companies are trading at billions of dollars. Now, we want these. This, there's always a good side to this stuff when you see these speculative booms. The good side here is a ton of new battery technologies are getting funded. Um, one of them, will, some, one or more of them, will probably do really well. Um, the ones that don't, there's still probably a lot of innovation that's going on that will be that will benefit all of us. 
Uh, and we also kind of want flying cars. So we're very happy to see these things funded. Um, but the problem is, is that, that they've been red hot and a lot of retail people can lose money. Um, and that's kind of been largely what's been happening over the last few months or the last kind of few weeks. So those companies have fallen dramatically. Um, and we think there's a good chance they, they, they may not reach those highs for many years, for many, many years. Now, we don't invest in almost, we very rarely invest in things that don't have revenue. Our view is we want winners. So, for example, we'd invest in a flying taxi company, but we'd invest in one that was selling a bunch of them and was growing at 100% and was clearly substantially better than the competition and was going to win what was obviously becoming a very large market. That, for us, is, is enough to, to put money to work. We're obviously five-plus years away from that. Um, we kind of – our process is – is basically looking at the, the the customer. You know, we want that to see that customer love and explosive growth. We want to see customers spending money on whatever it is the company is selling, whether it's a service, payment option, a piece of software, uh, you know, some renewable technology that sits on, on a roof. You know, we want to see where customers are spending their dollars and then we take the ones that are winning there as the true side, like who is winning at the customer. Our whole process is based around the customer. Um, so for these companies with no revenue, you know, we can't, it doesn't really fit what we do. It doesn't, it doesn't, we, do, we can't get that comfort. Um, and I think we've had so many companies that have gone up five times, eight times, uh, quite a few that have done 10 times or more. You know, we, we think we can make plenty of money in these successful companies that are winning and then just make sure that our entire portfolio consists of winners, current winners. So we have stayed away from all those kinds of zero revenue stacks. Um, and broadly, we think it's going to be a very long journey for those investors. There's going to be more capital that needs to be raised. They're chasing moving targets, which is existing technology that's incrementally improving. Um, and there was, you know, a real speculative fever, uh, you know, about a month ago um, when markets topped. Um, there's one thing that kind of triggered this, which I've got to address, and that's uh, rising interest rates. So markets kind of bottomed, I guess, in March. I think interest rates bottomed shortly after. Uh, they've gone up from below 50 basis points to one7 um, and that 1.7 is interesting because it means there's been like a 120 basis point move uh, in interest rates. Now, our 12-month number from, and this is February, so March we're, we're down a little bit. Um, you know, we're up 12 in Jan, 2.5 in Feb. Um, from that point, we're up over 129%. Then March we're down a little bit, but we're still well up for this year. So... Over that period, we kind of did to the end of Feb, we did 129% over the, over the 12 months before then, uh, net of all fees and costs. Um, and that was in a period where interest rates rose 100 basis points. And so you can indeed generate very strong returns in rising rate environments. Now, what, has, what, are, what are the downsides of, of rising rate environments? I'd say they kind of like hit a peak. You know, it's the last time this kind of happened was 2018. Interest rates went peaked at 3.2 briefly and then basically fell. Um, and that kind of created a, a, a panic in, in December 2018, called it Christmas Massacre. That's when our software valuations basically was the last time they were actually um, almost what you could call low. Uh, and there was a huge contraction in valuation. But it's important to note that was temporary. You know, it's 20, that was 2018, it's 2021. Many of those companies are two, three, sometimes, some of them even four times the size, and the stocks have done even better. And from the low, the multiples have increased because the high valuations contracted the multiple, basically caused a panic. Either way, we, 
um, which, which resulted in a lot of multiple returns from that point were excellent. Now, we're not there now. The, the difference between that and now is, I, I guess there's, there's many differences. One of the main differences is that we're starting from much higher valuations. So even though you know, software companies might have dropped 30, 40% in multiple, they're still probably, another, they're still probably well above, maybe even twice where they were at 2018. Um, so there could still be another 50% contraction before we get an entry point as good. Um, but should that happen, you know, we'll, our tiny little software ownership will go from, you know, one, two, three to, to 10, 15, 20, um, because the returns from there will be exceptional. Um, the other thing to note is that rising interest rate environments are generally okay. Uh, you know, we've weathered this first kind of 100 basis point. Um, they are going to reduce valuations, but the game that we try and play is, you know, hold 50 plus stocks growing at 100% on average whether that's weighted or, or, or median. Um, and that, for us to kind of just break even, multiples need to contract faster than those companies are growing, um, which is more than 5% a month. And so we'll have periods where kind of in, from mid-February to now we've kind of drawn down a bit, even though we're still up quite a lot. We're up a lot in mid-Feb. Um, the contractions kind of happen all at once, but the compound growth kind of happens over time. So in two years' time, Certainly in one year, two year, three year, as you go out in time, the compound growth is by far the most important thing. You know, a company that can double, double, and double again, an example of that would be something like uh, Afterpay or Tesla did even more over the last kind of five, six years. You know, those kind of companies that, that can do that, um, that 30, 40, 50% contraction in multiple is, is largely irrelevant. Um, and most importantly, once it happens once, then you're at the bottom and then you've just got the comp- then your forward return is actually going to be the compound growth from that point plus whatever multiple appreciation you get. And so we're kind of I don't want to say we're, I don't want to sound too blasé because nobody wants to see valuations contract. Um, but we're very careful, firstly, to make sure that we're in relatively low multiple stuff, trade out of the stuff that's exposed to the huge falls. And then when you see these contractions, they generally they they don't seem to scare us as as much as they're scaring everybody else. Um, for us, this is this is this is we're much we're actually more comfortable now than we were in February, um, because we know that these things are trading more sensibly. The heat's out of the market, you know. Uh, or oh, one other one other really important point about this current environment. So let's say now everyone's saying that rising rates have triggered a fall. I think it's like a bit of a too convenient explanation. I think things ran really hot and then they came back. It's almost like I feel like that was is more the answer, and it's coincided with the rising interest rates and a recovery. Uh, and a rotation into companies that, that 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 have been kind of stagnant for so long, you know, I'd prefer to see it that way. It's too. It's the simple explanation is kind of misleading. Obviously, journalists love it. It's a. It's the, the link is not one to one. It's not like interest rates rise and stocks and stocks fall or vice versa. It's 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 much more complicated than that. Um, but let's say let's say that that is indeed the case. Uh, then the good news is that. That change in interest rates can only kind of happen once. <laughs> so they could go a lot further, but once they're up, they're up, and then there's a good chance the next time something bad happens, they'll come back down. So at the moment, let's say it's 170, 1.7% 10-year. Um, once you get to two, two and a half, then you're talking about like long-term 10-year averages. Once you get three, four, five, then you're then you've got in a situation where um, you know that would almost certainly coincide with another 30% contraction in multiples. Uh, but then you've got a situation where any kind of recession, anything goes wrong, and those interest rates are going to come down very quickly, very fast. And if there's a sharp fall in equities that coincides with that shock, 
you know, the rebound in fast-growing tech companies that basically move irrespective of the economic cycle. Like nobody, when people make tech a $20 tech purchase, they almost never kind of, or subscription, they almost never really consider the economic environment. Um, when that kind of, ha- they, they care about the quality of the product. You know, when that, if that shock hits and interest rates fall and there's a, everything will sell off and we'll be caught up in it because we'll be, we'll be 100% long because it's just what we do, um, the rebound will be spectacular at the back end. So as interest rates rise, it almost gives you kind of like a bit of a cushion. It gives you somewhere for things to kind of correct, some some release valve if something new goes wrong. Um, I guess the other thing to think is people talk about rotations. Again, rotations don't really bother us. They're, they're, we probably, you know, it's 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 hard. Often often we just kind of skate them. So the last two just kind of pass us unscathed. This one has kind of hit us from the high to low, even though we're still done pretty well for the calendar 2021 so far. Um, but ultimately, you're you're so much better off, in in my opinion, and this is just an opinion, with a basket of companies growing, you know, seventy, eighty, a hundred percent organically, that are materially bigger, you know, month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year. You know, you might get a, a situation where banks bank multiples double. They go from PB of half, which is something trained to one or one to two, but that that there's kind of a limit to how far that can go. You might get like these periods where those all those stocks and all those managers do exceptionally well um, and then our multiples contract in our, in our fast-growing, widely loved tech stocks. Um, but a year later, our companies will be twice the size and they'll be roughly the same size. Maybe they've made a paid a 5% yield. You know, we're so much better off long-term uh, in these fast-growing tech companies. Um, so broadly, uh, that's kind of how we're seeing the market, you know, sharp rally, speculative boom, good and bad things about that, probably good for the world, probably bad um, if you just bought your first stocks in that period. Um, a rise in interest rates that may or may not be coincide with kind of a deflation of that and a change in risk sentiment. Uh, a period where almost certainly, you know, kind of old school assets are going to outperform. Um, but, you know, for our stuff, valuations have contracted a lot over a period where we've gone up. Um, and interest rates have gone up. And so we think that actually sets us up pretty nicely, you know, for the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months. Uh, but kind of irrespective of what we think, we try to avoid opinions at all times. We're just doing our job. And, and you know, I see our job as, as making sure we have a portfolio of the highest quality, fastest growing companies that we can find. And, you know, if we find a new one, we'll, we'll try and make space in the portfolio. It's basically why it's, it's grown, the number of stocks we own has gone so high. You know, some really interesting IPOs lately. Um, one was Coupang. So it's kind of like the number one e- e-commerce provider in, in South Korea that has built their own distribution network, which is materially different to say how Amazon developed or how others have developed. Even in China, there's different delivery companies. Um, this is like a kind of Amazon, a local Amazon, so limited geographical expansion probably, um, but one that is invested in building, you know, probably the best um, logistics and same-day delivery kind of thing. So in the evening, you can kind of like order your milk and eggs and 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 presents and whatever your kids need for school and arrive the next morning, you know, at your door in, in a neat, eco-friendly package. Um, they all seem to do something very interesting in returns, which is basically if you want to return something, just say you want to return it and then leave it outside your door and be picked up. That is amazing. That is, you know, incredible. And, and you always, I've always found if you find companies that are doing cool stuff like that, Generally, that bodes really well for how they think and how they're going to evolve over the next three to five years. Um, so that's a, that's a recent one that we've kind of added to. Um, 
yeah, anyway, I might wrap up there. I hope that was interesting. I hope that gave you a bit of a flavor of how we're looking at SPACs, how we're looking at that lift in sentiment, how, what we think about interest rates, why we kind of like them a little bit higher, um, how striking those numbers are that, you know, multiples contract 30 40% and stock might only be down 5 or 10 if it's grown over that period. Um, there's a few interesting things going on in markets. Uh, stay safe out there and please be in touch if you have any questions about what we do or you want me to address anything next time. So my email address is michael at frazzascapitalpartners.com. Hope you enjoy your week. Bye.